Welcome to the Outpost Bible Church podcast. My name is Pastor Alex Rodriguez. The Outpost Bible Church seeks to see men and women delivered by Christ, discipled in Christ, and deployed for Christ in His kingdom. Our values are to be Christ-centered, gospel-driven, scripturally grounded, prayerfully dependent, and mission-focused. Here, you will be able to find all of our Sunday morning and Sunday evening sermons. God bless. Father God, we come before you in the name of Christ this afternoon. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open your word and have you speak to us. The world is so noisy, so distracting, that it's very easy for us to come here this afternoon and have our minds and our hearts somewhere else. And so we pray now asking for your help. Help us to ignore all those distractions and focus our hearts and minds, incline our hearts and minds to focus on you, God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we also need your help to see how beautiful and excellent and glorious you are. The world tries to to make all these shining, glittering things and tell us that's beautiful, but the true beauty is found in seeing you, and we see you most clearly in your word. So open our eyes that we would see you now. Father, I ask as a church that you would grab hold of our hearts and that you would unite our hearts to both fear and treasure your name, Lord. For when we fear you, we need not fear anything that happens in this world. And when we treasure you most of all, Lord, we know we will be guarded from idolatry. Father, satisfy us with your steadfast love through your scriptures. Lead us into truth in a world full of lies. Take the word proclaimed, Lord, and plant it deep within our hearts to shape us more into the image of Christ. Perhaps there's even one here today or more than one who doesn't know you, Jesus, as Lord and as Savior, we pray here and now that as we look into your word, you would open their eyes, give them a heart of faith, and bring them into a saving relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing with our series on true biblical friendship. Um, we may, just being honest, I may see if there's one more message for us in this series, but if most, more than likely we'll be getting back into Luke next week. And so uh, I'm excited to go back into Luke. I've loved this series, uh, but I do love preaching verse by verse, line by line. So um, if you wanted to get caught up on Luke, we're five chapters and 11 verses in, picking up on Luke chapter 5, verse 12 next. So you can start reading Luke and kind of get refreshed. But today we're going to be looking at biblical friendship. Specifically, we're going to be looking at cultivating biblical friendship. And so as we do so, I want to begin by having you take a moment and ask yourself this question. Are true biblical friendships worth the effort that they require? For you. Are true biblical friendships worth the effort that they require? You see, most people approach friendship kind of the way you approach raking leaves. What I mean by that is most people are content simply skipping, uh, skimming over the surface. 
minimal effort. But the reality is, true biblical friendship does not come from a raking leaves approach. True biblical friendship is more like having the mentality of grabbing a shovel and digging for gold. It takes effort, but it yields great reward. So again, are true biblical friendships worth the effort they require for you? In order to take that biblical approach that I'm going to dig deep for the gold and gems and treasures of friendship, it's going to involve having a certain attitude towards friendship and certain actions toward biblical friendship. So that's what we're going to be unpacking here. For those of you who take notes, the big idea, the summary statement of our time together is this. Cultivating true biblical friendships require us to have the right attitude and actions before God and others. Let me repeat that. Cultivating true biblical friendships requires us to have the right attitude and actions before God and toward others. Now, before we start looking at these attitudes and actions, we need to address something. So our first point this afternoon is the attack on friendship. Because there is an attack. The vast majority of people in the world would agree that friendship is important. I've yet to meet a Christian who would say that having true, close, intimate biblical friendships is not important. They would all say, amen, we need that, I want that. So then why is it so rare? I remember hearing one preacher say, perhaps one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever did was having 12 close friends for three years. Why is it having these true, deep, rich, life-giving, grace-infused friendships are so rare in the church? What are the enemies that are preventing this from taking place? And there are some. So I'm going to list a couple here. And again, nothing in this series has been exhaustive. I hope this is more just biblical food for thought. But you have the enemy of busyness. You know, I really would have more friends and I'd be more committed, but I'm just so busy. I just don't have time for people. I don't have time for friendships. I get home from work and I'm just exhausted. That's a real enemy. And it's not saying that we're not too tired. I get that. It doesn't mean we don't try. But busyness. But not only busyness, how about the perception of being too busy? Here's what I mean by that, and this is one I'm guilty of, and I need to repent of regularly. The way you talk, the way you communicate, you present yourself, you project yourself as being so busy that perhaps there are people that are like, man, I would love to reach out, but I hate to put more on their plate. Because you speak more of your busyness than you do of your desire for relationship, for friendship. Busyness is an enemy to friendship. Now, for those who, 
for, for anybody using busyness as an excuse, because that's what it is, if you're too busy to put it in the work of cultivating biblical friendships, then what you're really saying, if we peel back the layers, is that I'm too busy to live as a redeemed image bearer of Christ. Because you were saved unto these friendships. And so if you're like, I'm just too busy for friendships, well, then you're too busy to be obedient. So I've had to work really hard at making sure that I'm not projecting a certain level of busyness that keeps people at bay. And I have to die to myself to make time for people. Because it's not that I don't want the time, I do. Second enemy is the fear of being known. Well, the idea of friendship sounds really good, but you know what? You're asking me to get close to people. You're asking me to open up. You're asking them me to get close enough that they can see my warts and wrinkles uh, uh, of the heart? If they really get close, they're not going to love me. They're not going to accept me. They're going to, I can't do it. Nope, can't. I can't get close to people. The prospect of that is terrifying. It's a legitimate enemy. Flowing out of that is the fear of being hurt. You know, I've been burned so many times by people. I just can't do it again. I can't draw close and put myself in a position to get hurt. Well, sure. Here's the reality, though. If you don't put yourself in a position to get hurt, you're never actually putting yourself in a position to be loved. So there's the fear of being hurt. There's the enemy of selfishness. You're selfish with your time. I hear it all the time, and I've been guilty of it. You know what? It's been such a busy day. I just want some me time. I want to veg out and do me. I'm not saying there isn't a place for that. Right? But then what you're really saying is, I don't want, I, I don't view people as friendships. I'm a consumer. I view people as products. So to the degree that they're going to give me a good return on investment, I'll, I'll spend time with them. But if not, I'd rather just be about me. So there's the enemy of selfish. Then there's the enemy of entitlement. Well, I would have friends, but guess what? Nobody ever comes to me. Nobody ever calls me. Nobody ever wants to hang out with me. But that's entitlement. You're just expecting everybody to come be your friend, but you've never actually put yourself out to be a friend. The best way to have a friend is to be a friend. So you have this enemy of entitlement. Now, this one's very prominent in our society. The enemy of thin skin. You know what? I was friends with that person, but they said something I didn't like, so I can't be friends with them ever again. That's the case. I'm telling you right now, if, if, if we take the thin skin approach, you couldn't be friends with yourself. Because you're going to say things about yourself that you wouldn't want anybody else saying. Relationships are messy. Guess what? You're a sinner. You've said hurtful things about people. But thin skin prevents us from getting close because the first time somebody gives you just a little bit of an emotional bruise, you're ready to flee. And our culture is promoting this idea 
that you're a victim. How dare somebody say you did something wrong? They are so unloving. And so we cultivate thin skin, sadly. Then there's the enemy of idolatry. Specifically, what I'm thinking here is the idolatry of marriage and the idolatry of children. I'm going to step on some toes here, I know. I hear people say all the time, my spouse is my best friend. Awesome. Why are they they your only friend? I'm not telling you not to have them as your best friend, just that's your only friend? But we become so fixated, especially there's been there was a movement within the church, and you see the books about we became hyper focused on marriage because perhaps there was a time where marriage was just kind of discarded, and so now everybody's so focused on wanting to have the perfect marriage that they've actually made their spouse the golden calf. I don't have time for anybody else. I have to have three date nights a week. We have to sit down and speak heart to heart, face to face for an hour. I don't have time for people. I have to be there. But you end up making an idol of your spouse. The reality is, when you have friends, you're actually a better spouse. Biblical friends. But then you have the idolatry of children, too. I don't have time for people because I have to spend my every free moment pouring into my children. And you actually become the slave of your children. It's actually healthy for your kids to see you having friends in Christ and to see you laughing and rejoicing and and living out the Christian life with others. They need to see that example because they're not seeing it out in the world. But we've created an idolatrous relationship with marriage and with child rearing. So that's an enemy. And then for those perhaps that are a little younger here, the enemy of social media or the deception of social media, we can call it. Now, I have really close friends I've built through an online means. One of them was just here a few weeks ago. Chris was a blessing to my soul to be able to spend a couple days with him. But while I'm not saying you can't have true friendships online, what's happening is that everybody thinks that's sufficient. I have my online friends, therefore... I don't need flesh and blood. And that's a lie. As a matter of fact, the friends I have online, the thing we always talk about is how can we get face-to-face? Your friends, your followers on whatever social media platform you have, your friends, that's not necessarily friends. That's just numbers. They don't, because here's the amazing thing with social media and this enemy, is that it actually allows you just to promote and present yourself the way you want people to think you are. But you don't actually have to get up close and personal and people don't have to know your life and hold you accountable and actually be a friend. But social media promotes it as if it's real. You can hide online. So social media has created a fake world where you can say you have friends but you're actually super lonely. And the time I worked with teens and even talking to to various men who are raising children, the reality is social media is creating some of the most depressed, lonely, suicidal teens and young adults that we've ever known. Social media should be called social suicide because it kills your social life. 
And the last one I want to address, the last enemy, is the deception of friendliness instead of friendship. And I think this is where churches are especially guilty. You could think you're a church that's all about friendship. You're just very friendly on Sundays. You're very friendly. You've been hanging out for hours. We, we hang out for hours sometimes, especially when we have Sunday night services. But that doesn't necessarily mean we are a friendship-building, friendship-loving church. It could just mean we're friendly. So as the world continues to move further and further from God, we see friendship suffering. So I'm not one usually to, to cite stats, but this one's very telling. The number of close friendships that Americans has has declined, it shows. In 1990, this percentage is, 3% of Americans in 1990 said they had no friends. That's 12% now. One close friend, 1994%. Today, 2021, 7%. Two close friends, 9% in 1990. 13% in 2021, and the numbers just keep going up. I'm not going to share them all. That chasm is widening. Friendship is suffering. Loneliness and depression is increasing. God created us to be relational people in friendship with God first and foremost, and then friendship with one another. But the more you remove God from society, the more you actually destroy the relational fabric of what it means to be a person. So I share all of this because God created us and has redeemed us for having these true biblical friendships. Christ has come to restore this very thing, vertically with him and then horizontally with one another. True biblical friendship, to use an illustration, is like a garden. If you don't care for a garden, what happens? It gets overrun by weeds. It chokes out all the beauty and fruit, fruitfulness of a garden. But if a garden is cared for, if a garden is cultivated, the beauty and the fruitfulness of that garden increases. Friendship's a garden that has to be cared and cultivated. But there are some real weeds, some real enemies out there that we need to be aware of. So before we go to our second point, let me put another question in front of you. Of all the enemies to friendship that were listed, which one are you most given to falling into? All the enemies of friendship that were listed, which are you most given to falling into? I'll tell you right now, for me, it's the presenting myself as too busy for people. What is it for you, I wonder? And how do you put it to death? So our second point now, the attitude toward friendship. And when I say attitude, what I mean by that is the heart posture that we need to be cultivating as we pursue biblical friendships. And the first heart posture, the first attitude needed is an attitude of love, which seems like a given and yet seems to be in short supply. All true biblical friendships must begin with the heart of love. 
Because there is nothing biblical in the world without love. Because God is a God of love. Love for God first, and then love for one another. And that order really matters. Listen to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, our Lord is speaking. And he is asked by the scribes, what is the greatest command? You shall love the Lord. He starts at verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's citing from the book of Leviticus. And that order matters because unless you are connected to the God of love, you can never truly love another person. If you don't love God with all that you are, you have no hope of loving someone well and loving someone rightly. Which then, the implication is if somebody doesn't have a restored relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not, able, they're not ever able to truly, in the most ultimate sense, love anyone. So all true relationships must begin with love. Proverbs 17, 17. Some of these verses we'll come back to at various points to draw our focus to different things. But in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17, it reads, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. True biblical friendships means that you are a constant source of love for another. You don't have office hours on love. You know, it's 5 p.m. My time to love you has come to a close. Um, If you need some love, shoot me an email. I'll get back to you tomorrow. It's not how that works. One of my seminary professors speaking on this issue spoke of something called the 3 a.m. test. You want to know if they really love you? Have an emergency at 3 a.m. See if they pick up the phone first. Secondly, see if they get out of bed and actually come to minister to you. You don't love when it's only when it's convenient. A friend loves at all times. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is in the friendship between Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. So if you were to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Think of your closest friends. Think of your three, if you have three, your three closest friends in Christ. 
those three true biblical friendships you have, two, one, whatever it is you have, could you say, I love them to such a degree that my very soul is knit to theirs? It's powerful. That's the kind of love that true biblical friendships are called to have. Notice in verse 3 it said, he made a covenant So the question regarding your friendships in Christ, do you truly love them or do you simply enjoy their presence? It's convicting, isn't it? Think about people I call friends. When I think about that type of love, all of a sudden my friendship circle went a lot smaller. Could I say my soul is knit to their very soul? The other attitude needed in friendship is sacrifice. You have to have an attitude of sacrifice. It's, you're not friends with someone because it's personally advantageous to you. That's called networking, not friendship. This is why, as we saw last week, friendships must be founded on the gospel. The cultivation of biblical friendships must have a desire and a commitment to love the other one sacrificially. I will love you even at cost to myself. I will love you especially at cost to myself. It's you before me. Gee, I wonder if anyone's ever given us an example to love like that. We need to look no further than Christ. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. The entire life of Christ was a life of sacrifice, for those who would be brought to him, who would be given to him by the Father. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Doesn't get much more sacrificial than that. Jesus makes that point in John chapter 15, verse 13. John 15, 13, our Lord says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends, sacrificed themselves. So there's a series of questions today, another question for you. Is your attitude toward loving your friends shaped by the cross? Is your attitude toward loving your friends shaped by the cross of Christ? 
Other attitudes needed, constancy and commitment. Each week, the Lord gives me the privilege of coming up here and, and preaching the word of God and praying over the elements. And I say often that we are a family because I really mean that. Dysfunctional, as all families are, because we all bring our baggage and our sin, but a true family that has been brought together through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are united to one by our shared faith. And because of that, our relationships should be ever-deepening and there should be a unique and special commitment that we have toward one another. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Those true biblical friendships that we have in Christ should be marked by a constant commitment to them. The reality is, and the church at large is guilty of this, but some churches more than others, they're more focused on making sure we love the outsider to get them in the church than actually loving your family in the church as a message to the outsiders. So I'm going to love you until you get inside, and then I'm going to leave you as an orphan. It's all, I love you, I'm here for you, I'll do whatever you want. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. All right, good luck. That's what many people experience. Or we tell them about, you can have the most satisfying, groundbreaking, unspeakable relationship with God and be brought into this family. And then you come into the church and you said, where'd the family go? Where's the friendship? Where's the relationship? And we just give them doctrine, 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 but there's no actual loving one another. We need to be constant and committed to loving and doing good to one another, especially in the faith. John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. By this, the whole world would know you are my disciples if you love one another. Let us make sure our friendships in the Lord are constant and committed to each other. There's something powerful when you know that no matter what is happening in life, that friend in Christ is going nowhere. No matter how bad things get, they're by your side. The world may turn their back on you, but not your friend in the Lord. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I 
I fear the only time we think about that verse is when we highlight it in our Bibles. If we believe that, then let us be the kind of men and women who are constant and committed to each other in true biblical friendships. This is the difference between a worldly superficial friendship and a friendship that is grounded in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know God does not change. So he who has made us his own says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if we are to live that kind of vertical, gospel-grounded, Christ-centered love and friendship toward one another, then we need to have that same posture. So another question. Have you ever had that type of friend? type of friend you know is not going anywhere. Follow-up, are you that type of friend? You know what? They really burned me. Forget them. How many people have a bad friend experience and so they just change churches? Constant and committed to one another because Christ is constantly committed to us. The last attitudes are an attitude of trust and integrity. Now, here's a, a, a big fear for many people, understandably, especially in a world that is just infested with lies. If I open up and I share my fears, my struggles, my sins, my failure, that person is just going to go tell everybody. And then I'm going to walk into church on Sunday and all eyes are on me. Nope. I'm not going to trust them. Not going to trust people. Keep them at arm's length. How you doing? Living the dream. God forbid they saw that I was a sinner. They might kick me out of church. On the flip side, how many of us have been guilty of gossip and slander? Something's been entrusted to you. Well, I just told them because I wanted them to pray about it. No, you wanted people to know that you're in the know. It's the reality. We need to do better at cultivating friendships where there is a trust in there. That thing is locked down like Fort Knox. What has been said to me in confidence stays there. And I will have integrity of heart even if I'm asked about it, to say, you know what, I can't speak on that. It's not for me to talk about. And I've, I've failed here. We all have. So I don't stand up here as someone who says, you know, I'm the example of trust and integrity. I have failed miserably at times. By the grace of God, it's an ever-increasing trust and integrity. But let's just be honest. It's something that I would say the last five, six years is really unburdened since I've had a son. Because when you have a little boy, especially as a father, you recognize the kind of man he's going to become is very reflective of the kind of man you are. So I tell my son all the time, a man keeps his word. Integrity, trust. We need to be those kinds of men and women in our friendships. We can't be gossips. We can't bear false witness. We need to be trustworthy. Look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. Proverbs, in many ways, is a, a manual on friendship. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. We must be 
men and women of integrity in our friendships. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. And let me just say, if somebody breaks trust, that doesn't mean you cut them out of your life. We believe in the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of forgiveness. We say that we are men and women of grace, so let's show a little. Doesn't mean the hurt isn't there. Doesn't mean time isn't needed to rebuild. It's funny, though, we so often judge people on their actions and we judge ourselves on our intentions. Let us make sure that we're extending the same grace toward others that we expect that we would want grace shown to us. And let us continuously make that deposit into the relationship of trust and integrity. Are you the kind of friend in Christ that people can securely and confidently open up and share with? So these are some of the attitudes, heart postures of friendship that are needed. Number, point number three, the actions of friendship. So if this is the heart, what am I actually to do in these relationships? First, we need to be devoted to one another, committed to one another. Sacrificing for one another. We saw that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, to count others more important than yourself. Which means, when it comes to true biblical friendship, you don't do math. What am I going to get out of that? That's math. That's not friendship. You seek to sacrifice more than you seek to receive. It is better to give than to receive, Jesus says. When it comes to friendships, learn to be the least important person in your life. Focus on the well-being of others. Seek to live in such a manner that you're constantly thinking about how can I do well for them? How can I bring blessing into my friends' lives? Again, Jonathan and David, amazing picture. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 23. Now here's the amazing thing. Jonathan is the son of Saul. Saul is the current king of Israel, which makes Jonathan the what? The heir to the throne. Kind of a big deal. But Jonathan recognizes and sees what God is doing and what God has said. So Jonathan, in his commitment and in his devotion to David as his friend, sacrifices being heir to the throne. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 15 through 17. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you.
You ever love somebody so much you give up your seat for the, you give up the throne? Imagine that. I know God, what God's doing in your life. I know that's supposed to be my spot, but I'm so devoted to you. And I'm so devoted to you because of my devotion to God. For the throne, I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that happens in your life. Amazing. It's an amazing picture of devotion, commitment, sacrifice, because he loved him. Look at the words of comfort. Don't fear. Do not fear, David. My dad's not going to find you. He's not going to put you to death like he's trying. I'm committed to protecting and placing you where God has called you. That's, wouldn't we all want a friend like Jonathan? We actually never hear much of David's commitment to Jonathan. We can infer we hear a lot about Jonathan's commitment to David. It's a beautiful picture. Jonathan's the one that's in line for it all. Some of us are, only, are, are great friends until it's really going to cost us. Jonathan's friendship to David cost him the throne. We never see him complaining about it. What does he say? You're going to be king over Israel, and I'll be right next to you. You can almost feel Jonathan's joy. It's almost, I, I read that I can imagine Jonathan smiling It'll be right there and I see what God's doing in your life. Second action is communication. It's a novel idea that friends actually have to talk to one another. The world operates like we could be the closest of friends just through text. I'm not saying texting's bad. God has enabled all these means of communication. But friendships are about communication, talking. So much so that we see God use that as an example. Go to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. It would just be, it was a given. For friends, we're, we're facing each other, we're spending time with one another, and we're talking, we're sharing. In today's day and age, we've lost the art of communication. Especially the younger you are, your phone rings, and you see someone calling, and you're like, somebody die? Like, why are they calling? You just shot me a text. But there's something beautiful about talking. You guys have met Drew, good friend. He called me last night. I'm like, what's going on, dude? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, why'd you call him? Talk. He's like, oh. We just, I guess, invented a time. He's like, what do you want to talk about? That's what he asked me. I'm like, you called me. What do I want to talk about? We just started talking. I just floated a question out there. We just started talking. Next thing you know, we got it. We're talking about his sermon. We're talking about my sermon. You know, he, he, he teaches golf. We're talking about golf. I know nothing about golf. We just enjoy talking to one another because that's what friends do. They communicate with constancy, with excitement, with joy. Because relationships require communication. 
Relationships that don't communicate are relationships that won't last. You build a relationship, one, you, you build a friendship one conversation at a time. And as much as possible, seek to have rich, God-centered, scripturally-filled conversations. That's not all I talked about, but it's amazing. I could be talking with a buddy about the Cubs, and somehow we end up back at Christ. Because true biblical friendships always end up back at Christ. Common questions that me and my friends say to one another, and I would encourage you to start putting into your kind of repertoire of conversation, where does God have you in his word this week? Actually, you know what? I wasn't in my word this week. Look at that conversation right there. Actually, I was reading this in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. What do you think about that conversation? What's God been teaching you today? What's God been teaching you lately? Another conversation. What's God doing in your life? How can I be praying for you? These are all conversations that bring you back to the very lifeblood of it all, Christ. So talking is communication, is talking. Communication is also praying for one another. A while back, we just started our first series at the church in the book of Colossians. And I remember getting to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, and reading how Paul was praying for the saints that he loved dearly in Colossae. He says in verse 9, chapter 1, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And he unpacks that. When you pray for someone, when you pray for a friend, it is an amazing show of love for them. Especially when you pray for them when they're not around. You want to know if you really love your friends? Do you pray for them? And specifically, when you pray for them, do you pray for them with this rich, biblical, Christological, gospel-infused substance that we see Paul praying? Or is your prayers why I hope he gets the job? I'm saying that's a bad prayer. I'm saying it's more than that. Let's pray for actual things and circumstances, but let's, let's be lifting up our friends before the very throne of God, asking that God would do a mighty work of sanctifying and conforming them to the image of Christ so that they can see, savor, and enjoy him in his fullness. If you're praying that for a friend, you really love him. So question, how burdened is your heart for the sanctification of your friends. Prayer is a great revealer. I want to make sure we get to this point here, so move ahead. One of the chief actions of a friendship is that you counsel one another. What I mean by that is we help one another navigate through life. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. There's this principle there. You don't live in a vacuum. Bring people in. Ask them for biblical wisdom. 
Ask him to help you discern where to go here according to the word. Proverbs 27, verse 17 also says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Hey, this is going on, or I'm thinking this, or I'm wrestling with this, or I have to decide on this. Help me make sense of what would please God most, and we counsel one another in it. We need the biblical wisdom of friends. We need biblical friends to challenge our way, our thinking, and our, our, how we approach life. Because we get it wrong, and they get it wrong. We need one another to bring us back and say, well, you know, God's word says this, Alex. Have you considered what it says here? And with that counsel comes where people get so upset and why friendships, so many friendships fail. A very important part of true biblical friendships is accountability and confrontation. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. See, in a friendship, you are supposed to trust one another. And trusting one another in a biblical friendship means you give one another permission to examine each other's lives, to provide encouragement where needed, to provide instruction where needed, admonishment where needed, that you challenge when you need to challenge, that you correct, that you call your friend to repentance all according to the word of God by the power of the spirit of God who lives in you. You're not calling someone to try harder when you hold them accountable and you confront. You're calling them to depend on Christ and his word more. So you see how accountability and confrontation are connected because if you really love a friend, you will confront them on their sin. Some of you are so scared to lose friends, you actually never end up being a friend because you won't confront them on their sin and hold them accountable to the word of God. Proverbs 28, verse 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. I've been very blessed the last six years to have a friend, and it's not according to his temperament, who will say, hey, I got to talk to you. That's out of line. I've got a couple of those, and I'm super thankful. You need to care more about helping your friend be pure before God than being liked by you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, there is a warning there. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. But we're supposed to address these things. Now, accountability will feel like judgment to the person who does not actually want to deal with their sin. But... Anybody who knows me knows sometimes I can be a bit of a snarky person. And someone says, well, you're judging me. Yeah, I'm supposed to. 
Did you know the Bible tells you to judge one another? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now you judge with a biblical standard. And if you're going to judge someone with a biblical standard, you better be able to receive it too. But we actually are called to judge one another and hold one another accountable and confront each other's sin. Which is why friendship and account- why accountability has to happen within the context of friendship. And if somebody is holding you accountable, remember that person doing that cares for you. It's a lot easier to not approach a person. And then somebody's always wanting to qualify. Listen, people are imperfect. So if somebody's trying to hold you accountable as a friend and they don't say it perfectly or don't get it right, don't be a nuanced Nazi about it. Recognize it's coming from a heart of love. It's a lot easier to not approach somebody and to maintain peace than to approach somebody and say, I love you so much that it burdens and hurts me to see you in this place. Turn away from the sin. Turn to Christ. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller said, like a surgeon, friends cut you in order to heal you. A friendship without accountability will not be a God-honoring friendship. So we need to see that we have a responsibility to give and a responsibility to receive accountability within friendship, and that is God's mean of grace. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I was working with a guy. I wasn't very close with him, but he was at a church. The leadership of that church knew that he was being unfaithful to his wife. How many conversations did they have with him in nine years? Zero. How many times did his friends in Christ approach him? Zero. What did his other friends do outside of Christ? Encouraged him. At this point in his life, is this man a believer of Christ? His heart is very hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. I don't know. You see, when you don't hold your friends accountable, when you don't love them enough to confront them, what you're actually doing is allowing their heart to get harder and harder and harder. You may be the person that God is calling to be in that person's life to pull them out of sin and unto righteousness, to pull them out of darkness and to bring them into his marvelous light. Love them enough to give accountability And be humble enough to receive it. True friend is willing to wound you with truth so that you can live in relationship with God. They're more concerned with you growing in holiness than maintaining your happiness. So a question would be, how do you respond when someone seeks to hold you accountable? And how well are you doing at holding others accountable in your friendships? There's so much more that can be said. Um, time 
is quickly going. Let me just end with this. Be selective with your friendships. Make sure it's someone who fears the Lord and respects them, someone who's living close to the Lord. The Bible's very clear that who you surround yourself is who you can become. So godly friends are a great blessing. Be intentional in pouring into those friendships. Don't be lazy. But have the proper expectations. Not all friendships are going to be the same. Not all friendships will have the same depth and closeness. We see in the scriptures, Jesus had the 12. Jesus had the three. Recognize that each person has a certain bandwidth and ability of how many close friendships they can, they can manage. Some people can manage two close friendships. Some can manage 20. Everybody's wired a little differently. So we need to be aware of that. And we need to guard our hearts when you want to draw near to somebody in close friendship and they don't reciprocate. It's not necessarily that there's something wrong with it. It's just that you have bandwidth issue. Another reality is God just hasn't opened that door. You need to be content with the friendships God gives you as long as you're doing your part of pursuing and cultivating And lastly, just something I've learned being in ministry for a little bit now. Before God opened the door for me to pastor, I wanted really close relationships with various men in leadership. And they were friends, but I wanted to be so close to them. And I just didn't get met. And I grew bitter, hurt, and angry by it. It wasn't that they weren't friends, but I wanted to be the best of friends. When I brought into ministry, I learned that to a large degree, they, we couldn't be those kinds of friends because of the responsibilities they had. Because that person wouldn't have been able to be a really good friend to me because they couldn't be as open as transparent with me as I was with them because of where they're at. So recognize whatever various levels you're at. Some relationships, depending on station of life, position people are in, it's not even sometimes that they don't want to be a close friend. It's that they have certain responsibilities that they can't. So be careful how quickly we judge people when they don't reciprocate in the same way we want them to. There's different types of friends. Be thankful for any type of friend God gives you in Christ. Sometimes we're more focused on the friend we don't have than the friends we do. Lastly, don't make your friends your saviors. Especially teens and young adults. Your value, your dignity, your worth, it comes from who you are in Christ. It doesn't come from your social circle. It doesn't come from what people think about you. People are going to let you down. And we can so easily get to the place where we care more about our standing with our friends than our standing before God. We care more what our friends think about us than who we are in Christ. Remember, no one friend, no friend ever can be Jesus 
Because nobody can be all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, perfectly wise, perfectly loving, perfectly patient, and perfectly forgiving, and so forth and so forth. They can't. You're putting an expectation, a burden on them that they can't carry. And then when they fail you, you get angry. They weren't made for that. That applies to spouses too, as friends. Christ must be your best friend. And Christ must be the friend that gives you the strength to have all other friendships. He alone will not fail you. And you will fail others as a friend. So let us have the proper expectations, the proper attitudes, the proper actions. There's a whole lot of my notes we didn't cover. For those who are interested, I can email them. But remember, God has created us to have true biblical friendships. And when we do, we experience something of what God has. The God, he's invited us to see that. True biblical friendship is a means, when done right and faithfully, of drawing closer to God. Life's not easy, and in God's kindness, he's given us biblical friendships. So I'll close with this quote from Tim Keller. Friendship is a deep oneness that develops when two people, speaking the truth and love to one another, journey together to the same horizon, end quote. True friendship is two, two people. Hey, I'm heading to the celestial city. You're heading to the celestial city. Let's do it together. When it gets hard, I'll carry your pack and you'll carry mine when it's hard for me and vice, and we'll get there together, encouraging each other all the more. Go read the Pilgrim's Progress. There's a friend there named Faithful. It's a great picture of that. Let's pray. Father God, it's, there's so much that can be said on this, Lord, but I guess ultimately to be a biblical friend is to try to be what you were to us, Christ, to one another imperfectly and to keep pointing each other to Christ. Father, you've given us the mind of Christ. You've said that your love is important into our hearts. You consistently remind us that you are a God of rich mercy. And so, Lord, strengthen us to pursue friendship biblically. Strengthen us to be those kinds of friends. Strengthen us and give us eyes to see you, Jesus, and and may we imitate you as best we can. Guard our hearts against fears and enemies to this great gift of friendship in Christ. And Lord, help us make sure that we don't pursue friendship with one another more than we pursue friendship with you. But let us pursue friendship with you and out of that flows our friendship with one another. Thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.